0: time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Uh, great to be here. Can't complain at all. Some interesting developments uh, this week, Michael, on a story that you and I have been discussing for quite some time, the use of the Civil Resolution Tribunal to resolve some disputes with
1: respect to motor vehicle collisions. What's happened? Well, uh, Chief Justice Sinkson's been busy. That would be the short of it. Um, The uh, decision which came out uh, this week with respect to the Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, relates to the uh, province's effort to set up a no-fault system for ICBC Mm -hmm. uh, and to try to shift uh, disputes to this Civil Resolution Tribunal rather than having them heard uh, in court. And we've spoken about that before in terms of the fairness of that arrangement. Uh, The principal concern being that unlike judges who are independent of government and can't be fired if they make an unpopular decision, Uh the people who are deciding cases uh, for the Civil Resolution Tribunal um, are just on short-term contracts with the government. Uh, And that may be fine if the Civil Resolution Tribunal was doing what it was originally intended to do, which was to sort out things like, Small strata disputes over, you know, barbecues on the patio, uh, or uh, eventually resolve very small, um, small claims uh, actions. But it's not particularly appropriate uh, when one of the parties to a dispute uh, is the provincial government. You, you just—if you had a dispute with your neighbor, you wouldn't want your neighbor's employee deciding the outcome of the dispute. It's Indeed, just, uh, it wouldn't go fair. well for me. No. <laughs> No. So that's the, one of the key fairness concerns about uh, having this uh, tribunal uh, decide ICBC claims. But the decision that came out from Chief Justice Hinkson this week uh, about the province's efforts uh, dealt with uh, an even more fundamental constitutional principle about whether it was permissible uh, for the province to uh, force some of these disputes into that, forum. Uh, And the Chief Justice concluded that the province was not allowed to do that. Uh, And the analysis uh, came uh, under Section 96 uh, of the Canadian Constitution. And Section 96, if you read it, speaks about uh, the appointment of superior court judges, Uh and it, it grants that authority to the federal government. Subsequent sections in the Constitution provide uh, some protections for judges, superior court judges, like they can't be removed except uh, by the Governor-General on joint address of the Senate and House of Commons, right? Mm. Good idea. We should have a high threshold, so we can't just fire the judge. You don't like their decision. Indeed. Now, those protections and that provision in the Constitution would be rendered pretty meaningless uh, if a either level of government was permitted to just uh, create some new kind of judge uh, oh, or decision-maker and just okay. say, well, we're going to call this person the grand poobah, and the grand poobah shall decide all disputes, and we just won't have any more Section 96 court judges. Who needs them? Uh, because, of course, it's great for us. We can just fire the grand poobahs anytime we don't like what they're doing. Interesting. That would That would render all of those protections pretty well meaningless. And so, the Supreme Court of Canada has interpreted Section 96, which when you look at it, just talks about the power to appoint superior court judges mm-hmm. to mean more than just you can appoint them. It also means you can't just transfer their powers to some person with a different name and thereby make all of those protections meaningless. Interesting. And so the decision that came out this week was uh, Chief Justice Hinkson hearing a challenge to the expanded jurisdiction of that civil resolution tribunal, the provinces tried to transfer to it uh, authority to decide claims of up to $50,000 and also gave it the authority to decide if a, pers- if a car accident personal injury claim was a, quote, minor injury, which would limit how much the person could receive in compensation. Uh, And Chief Justice Hinkson found that uh, both of those things were unconstitutional. Uh, And the way that is analyzed is an interesting uh, thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it uh, comes from a a case uh, dealing with a uh, residential tenancy uh, arrangement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the first stage of that involves the court looking at what was the core jurisdiction of the superior courts in each of the four provinces at the time of Confederation? Hmm. So you actually have historical evidence, and in this case, a university professor who came and gave evidence about, you know, what was a superior court judge doing? What do they have exclusive jurisdiction over in Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in 1867? Uh, And that's the beginning of the inquiry. And indeed, uh, Chief Justice Inkson found that, properly construed, those issues, uh, like over claims for uh, personal injury up to $50,000, were was something which was within the jurisdiction, the exclusive jurisdiction of the Superior Court in those provinces at the time of Confederation. Um, interestingly, uh, in order to try to avoid the problem, the uh, province of British Columbia tried to characterize what they were doing was, rather than transferring authority over personal injury claims up to that amount, they tried to uh, characterize it as something to the effect of claims with respect to motor vehicle ac- minor motor vehicle accidents. And, of course, in 1867, you weren't having a whole lot of <laughs> motor vehicle accidents. People were crashing their horses, or falling off buggies. Well, that's so this- true, technically. So that didn't fly. Uh, and then the uh, court went on to analyze circumstances in which there can be an exception, even if uh, something is within the uh, core judicial function of those superior courts at the time of confederation, there are some limited circumstances where there would still be authority to uh, transfer uh, authority to some other decision-making body. And we've seen that, for example, with things like you'd have specialized bodies dealing with things like securities regulation, for example, or specialized bodies dealing with things like uh, labor disputes. But here, uh, the Chief Justice found that uh, this uh, particular effort didn't meet uh, the requirements uh, to do that um, and looked at the legislative scheme and whether this would have the desired effect. And there was also some very interesting analysis with respect to whether This idea would, in fact, speed things up or save money at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was some interesting evidence showing that, while there's a large number of ICBC civil claims that are filed every year, the overwhelming uh, percentage of those, uh, like 99.5% of them, settle before ever going to trial. There are only about 200 and some odd cases that ever get to trial Uh, Because, of course, there's that is the backstop, and if you don't come to a fair decision, there'd be a judge there that'll decide it. 99.5% of the cases, the people, lawyers, or the individual with ICBC, they just resolve it. Mm -hmm. And so he found that this wasn't some scheme that was likely to have broad other beneficial effects. And so the result of it... Um, is that he found those provisions of the Civil Resolution Tribunal legislation that gave them authority over claims up to $50,000 and to decide whether an injury was a minor injury. He found those to be unconstitutional because they violated Section 96 and that those are uh, areas of jurisdiction that are within the authority of the Superior Court of the province. Interesting. The result is you can uh, now continue uh, to go to uh, court and you're not stuck with, if you have a dispute with ICBC, uh, having to go to this tribunal where all the people making the decisions are employed by the government on short-term contracts. So I think probably a very interesting constitutional decision. It goes on for more than 100 pages analyzing all of that history. Mm. But I think also a good outcome, just in terms of broad fairness, uh, because we just really should have somebody who's not employed by one of the parties deciding these things that's just fair
0: now i i was i'm wondering i don't know if this is addressed in the decision. i haven't had a chance to do a close read of all one hundred pages. Is the subject of judicial review and the civil resolution tribunal being subject to judicial review by a superior court addressed?
1: that wouldn't answer the question because okay. on a on a judicial review. The authority uh, is a relatively narrow one, okay. and there would be uh, an obligation to uh, uphold a decision of a administrative nature unless it was found to be unreasonable, okay. which is a very high threshold, um, and so the fact that you could and you can have a a judicial review of an administrative decision, even of something like the Civil Resolution Tribunal, um, that isn't an answer to it, because on a judicial review, you could have a a judge well say, well, I would not have made this decision. It seems quite unfair to me. Um, But this is within the realm of possible reasonable decisions. You know, you've just disbelieved the... A uh, person, when they say they were injured and granted them nothing, for example, you know, say, I, I wouldn't have come to that decision, but it was a possible decision here. And, and so on a judicial review, that would be upheld. Uh, and the, the, the judge did find that it would be possible to go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal if both parties agreed to it. And so it leaves that as an available option, Uh, just like you could have both parties like in a claim agree to go to mediation, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's probably not a bad thing, right? If you have two people that agree, look, we've got a dispute over the fence. Uh, You know, I appreciate the person you want to decide it works for you, but I think they seem fair, so I'm happy to let them decide. Okay, (laughs) if that's how you want to order your affairs, that's allowed. It just means that it's not going to be a requirement now that you must go to the person who works for your neighbor to decide about the fence dispute, for example. All right. Thanks for helping me understand that, Michael. It's a complicated
0: area, but I do have a better understanding of it now than before this conversation.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. It's certainly complicated, and it goes on a long time. But the the decision, I mean... But the core of it is that this was within the uh, core jurisdiction of the superior courts uh, at the time of confederation. And so, so there the it will stay. Yeah. Take it away. It'll be yeah. there.
0: Oh, perfect. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll have more right after this. What's next on our agenda today, Michael?
1: Uh, well, the next thing on the agenda is actually, I think, uh, the flip side of what the Civil Resolution Tribunal could be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and an example of, uh, I think, an appropriate use of that kind of a... Uh, Uh, system to resolve disputes. Um, The system, of course, involves uh, an effort to resolve disputes using things like, uh, you know, voice response telephone and filling out uh, online forms and uh, having uh, evidence heard by telephone and this sort of thing. Uh, And while it's not an appropriate forum to resolve a significant dispute involving the government, um, it does have merit when you're sorting out relatively minor Um, civil disputes over money, uh, which would be often uneconomic to proceed with in court, right? Even if somebody isn't hiring a lawyer and trying to go to small claims, you still got to take time off work and go into the courthouse and so on. And for some claims, a person might say, hey, it's just not worth the the candle uh, to do that. Uh And so for small claims, really small claims, I think it is a good form. And there was a decision which just came out that's an example of Uh, how it can be useful, and one I think people should know about, because it's likely to affect quite a few people uh, over the past year in the context of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was a decision involving uh, a cancelled flight. And what happened is a family was in uh, India uh, in March, uh, bad timing, uh, and uh, their flight home got cancelled. They wound up uh, languishing Uh, for about two months there as uh, another effort to rebook a flight got cancelled as well. Uh, And then they eventually had to take an emergency uh, flight to get back to Canada. Well, what happened is that the the family who had purchased the ticket through a travel agency called their credit card company and managed to get the credit card company to refund half of the cost of the ticket, the one they couldn't use to come home because the flights were cancelled. They got home all right. But then the travel agency sued the family to recover the, just short of $5,000, they said, hey, you you know, you didn't pay for that return ticket. Uh, And so the travel agent went to the Civil Resolution Tribunal and sued the family. But I should say, this could equally work in the other direction. If somebody was unsuccessful in getting their credit card to refund them uh, for a canceled ticket. flight that they paid for, Uh you could equally go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal and make a claim to try to recover the money. Um, And here, the decision which just came out, the adjudicator concluded that the travel agency was not entitled to the um, $5,000 or so for the ticket because the family wasn't able to take the flight. Uh, And that was despite the fact that the travel agent argued that, well, Air Canada Uh, should have issued the family some kind of a voucher they might be able to use in the future. Um, The uh, adjudicator didn't accept that that was uh, clear or so. Um, And the net result is that the the family was able to recover the $5,000 and wasn't required to pay for it. And so that would be a, a good example of how that kind of scheme can be very helpful. And I would encourage people to consider using it if, for example, you're somebody who's wound up in that spot perhaps with uh, travel uh, arrangements cancelled um, and uh, the adjudicator in this case uh, looked at the concept of a frustrated contract which would be a contract which is unable to be carried out as a result of an unforeseen consequence that meet ne- the fault of neither party and found clearly that in this context COVID and the inability to take a, a flight met that uh, concept of being a frustrated contract It wasn't just a flight that got rearranged, it was canceled and the family already had to spend two months waiting around for an emergency flight. Um, And so people should be aware of that. Uh, And if you're somebody who uh, may have been, um, not had their uh, travel plans or travel payments refunded, you might wanna have a look at this decision Uh, and you can go to the Civil Resolution website, it's civilresolutionbc.ca, and you can start a, a claim, uh, and you can do it all online. So if you're somebody who's been uh, left uh, hanging as a result of a frustrated contract, having this kind of a scheme for that kind of a claim is a good one because otherwise you might say, "Look, I just can't go through the whole process to try to recover the you know few thousand dollars for my." Uh, hotel or airline or whatever got uh, tickets that got cancelled. And this does provide, I think, a good avenue for uh, fairness in that kind of a dispute. So have a look.
0: I'm sorry, I wasn't laughing at the circumstances of any of the cases. I just pictured all these people with all this time on their hands and in Zoom fatigue with nothing to do figuring out that they can go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal and just start filing claims against people they don't like. They need to be grounded, of course, I would assume, and there are protections in place.
1: Indeed, but, you know, I imagine now that they're not going to be sorting out large ICBC claims. There may be a few people over at the Civil Resolution Tribunal with some time on their hands, Uh, so perhaps they should be well employed sorting out what may be uh, a fair number of Uh, People who have been shortchanged as a result of uh, frustrated travel contracts uh, in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So don't feel like you're out of luck. There's a a potential solution to your problem uh, right on your website. So if you're sitting at home and bored, maybe get some resolution. Michael, one of the topics that we discuss
0: from time to time is the protection that you have, that I have, that everyone has for freedom of religion uh, under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and where those limits and how far they extend in certain circumstances. And one of the scenarios that I often have put to me by people is, well, well, how do they know if I really believe something? What if I found a new religion and I say we don't believe in speed limits? Do I have to obey speed limits anymore or can I just get away with it that way? Obviously, the legal system has protections to accommodate or deal with such situations but what about situations like a pastafarian and whether or not they're allowed to wear a pasta colander on their head (laughs) as part of a ostensible religion
1: yes indeed we we have in bc uh and apparently a properly registered society a church called the church of the flying spaghetti monster and people who are members refer to themselves as pastafarian Uh, And indeed, uh, they indicate that uh, their religion involves wearing a pasta colander on their head uh, or a three-cornered hat known as a pirate's tricorn. So (laughs) think of kind of like a folded black hat that, you know, arrow might have been wearing. Uh, And so uh, a member of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster showed up at ICBC a little while ago saying he wanted to renew his driver's license but wanted to wear one of his... Uh, religious hats in the photograph. ICBC refused him, and so he brought a complaint to the Human Rights uh, Tribunal saying, hey, you failed to make, uh, uh, provide uh, adequate protection uh, and accommodation for my religious beliefs. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the Human Rights uh, Tribunal uh, refused to take his complaint saying that you are a Pastafarian and members, and a member of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, which mocks religious beliefs and certain religious practices. Pastafarians wear colanders as religious headgear <laughs> and refuse to allow the complaint. And so the Pastafarian uh, sought a judicial review uh, of the decision by the uh, Human Rights Tribunal not to accept his complaint. Uh, and so we just received the reasoned decision from the B.C. Supreme Court uh, discussing whether uh, that uh, met the standard of reasonableness. Um, and uh, indeed, the, the judge found that uh, while the uh, Pasiferian made some very interesting submissions that were he described as thought-provoking insights into the complexities of religion generally, despite that, he found that the conclusions that the that the uh, commission Uh, reached was not an unreasonable one and so upheld it and so the net result at least at the moment uh, is that the Pastafarian is not able to wear the spaghetti colander on his head for the purpose of getting a driver's license photo taken. Um, Interestingly if you google it some of the adherents to this and apparently it's international um, have been making efforts to do exactly that and there are people online posing with uh, showing their driver's license with a upside down colander on their head and pasta Uh, and so It is, in fact, something that's going on uh, and uh, an interesting test of the uh, limits uh, of the sort of protections that we have both constitutionally uh, and under provincial human rights uh, legislation. Um, At the same time, on a more serious note, uh, right now uh, is uh, Chief Justice uh, Hinkson, who made that uh, Section 96 court decision, is currently hearing uh, the Uh, constitutional argument from the churches in the Fraser Valley uh, that are seeking uh, a a ruling that the limits on in-person services uh, are uh, unconstitutional. Uh, And uh, another interesting development on that front, there's lots of COVID and religion going on. Um, The government, I think, quite sensibly granted an exemption uh, for a uh, from the COVID-19 restrictions to a synagogue in Victoria yes. uh, where members were Orthodox uh, uh, Jews and they were not permitted by virtue of their religion to use electronic devices on the Sabbath. And so they said, look, we can't just do this on Zoom. Uh, we're not permitted to do that. And so the uh, Dr. Henry and the government uh, uh, agreed and uh, came up with a special exemption that allows them to have in-person services as long as people are spaced out sufficiently and wearing masks and small in number. Um, And so I think that's a very interesting thing. And and no doubt uh, that kind of exemption will play a a role in Justice Inkson's assessment of the restrictions placed on churches in the Fraser Valley, uh, where a similar argument uh, isn't likely to get the same kind of traction.
0: Michael Mulligan, thank you for the benefit of your insight and analysis into these matters as always. It's appreciated. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.